Hi, this is Cindy Cantrell with Compassionate Journeys, conversations about home care and hospice. On today's podcast, we're discussing patient advocacy, what it is, why it's important, the difference it makes, and how collaboration between the daughter of one very special couple and the medical teens at Merrimack Valley Hospice out of Lawrence, Massachusetts, and Parkland Medical Center in Derry, New Hampshire, eased heartbreak just a bit during the COVID-19 pandemic for one local family. I'd like to introduce a few guests today, and thank you so much for joining me both in the studio and on Zoom. First, there's Linda Barron, whose parents, Leo and Anna Barron, shared a remarkable 58-year marriage before COVID-19 claimed them both, just 59 hours apart from one another in May 2020. I'd also like to introduce two members of the Barron's caregiving teams. Rosemary Crawford George is Nurse Navigator Goals of Care at Parkland Medical Center. And Marley Beener is a certified hospice and palliative care nurse at Merrimack Valley Hospice. And thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Linda, I know this is difficult, and we thank you so much for sharing your story. Um, Would you please start by telling any of us who weren't lucky enough to meet your parents just a little bit more about them? Sure. My mom and dad, um, Anna and Leah, were married almost 59 years. Um, They had passed away three months shy of the anniversary. They had three granddaughters and two daughters. Um, my parents were huge family people. They loved um, loved family. They ballroom danced for over twenty five years. They were just very much people, very much people people. Um, my dad was a veteran, very proud to be so. Um, my dad had um, such a huge personality. His laughter just, it was just, but he's just vivacious. And my mom loved people. Her home was always open um, to anyone for coffee, to help anyone. They were just really sort of just good old-fashioned people. Well, in addition to the worry I know that you experienced over their illnesses, I know that you and your sister were prevented from visiting your parents after they were hospitalized at Parkland Medical Center due to COVID-19 restrictions. Um, how did that reconcile with your role as your parents' advocate? That must have made everything so much more difficult. Um, it was very difficult. Um, you know, my mom was not able to express um, her needs or her wants. She was nonverbal. And, you know, my dad was um, very articulate, but he had short-term memory. And mm-hmm. being the advocate, I really sort of had to make sure that um, their physical, their emotional, their spiritual was always being um, taken care of. And when COVID hit, it made it very difficult because that physical connection that I had with my parents, I would visit them often and being able to be by their side and sort of advocate for them side by side, I lost that. Yeah. So it actually created a lot of emotions with me. I was angry, I was sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just didn't know how to feel because I felt like I lost control of, some, of, control of being my parents' advocate. So how did you, I'm sorry to interrupt, how did you approach that with with the staff at Parkland Medical Center? Sure. Um, so when my parents got admitted to Parkland, um, they were new to Parkland. So I had a lot of fear of my parents not being able to express themselves. So what I did was um, when my parents got to Parkland, I made it my role or my business to contact every nurse on every shift 
because I didn't want people to treat my parents just as someone who had COVID or a couple that had COVID. I wanted them to know who Anna and Leo Barron were as people. Um, being in the healthcare um, profession myself, I know how much um, you know healthcare and treating the illness is so important and it's very individualized. For me, I know that every person is so different and that emotional connection is just as important, but I couldn't be there. So I made it, um, try to make it easy for staff by letting everybody know who my mom and dad were, you know, who they were as people, um, what their likes, what their dislikes were, you know, what my dad liked to eat, what he didn't want to eat, because he wasn't able to do that. So as I spoke to staff and let them know exactly who my mom and dad were, they personalized that care. And that was able to help my dad at the bedside to be able to be calmer in order to sort of accept sort of his role in the hospital. Um, so that's kind of what I did as an advocate. I just made it my business to make sure that the staff knew who my mom and dad were. In addition to that, I bought a little goodie bag to my dad every day while I was in the hospital. He loved his newspaper and I knew he liked chocolates and, you know, fruit. So I wanted to bring home to him mm -hmm. and he was in the hospital. I wanted to try to comfort him with something that he was familiar with. And the thing that really made it easy for me with Parkland specifically was that they really listened to everything I said. They didn't just yes me. I did speak to one nurse and she did say that my dad reminded her of her granddad in the only way that could have been done. She actually took the time to talk to my dad and sit beside his bed and got to know him as a person. So in a way they were, they were filling my shoes at the bedside where I could not be there. Now, Rosemary, it sounds like Linda was clearly very vocal about her parents' needs, but that the caregivers at Parkland were also very dedicated to getting to know them as well. Yes. So is that because of Linda, or is that because the Barons were so special, or is that just the culture at Parkland? I think, actually, it's a combination of all three. I think we were very fortunate that Linda was as articulate as she was in mm -hmm. telling us the individual aspects of each of her parents as we cared for them. But also, it's integral to our care, to our approach to care, to make a personal connection with our patients as soon as we can. Mm -hmm. And actually, most of us can do that within less than a minute, to make a personal connection, to find out some part of this patient's life that we can connect to, that we can begin to tell their story. And once that connection occurs between the patient and the caregiver, then it builds from there and we can find out even more about them and trust and confidence comes into play. And uh, they do, as Linda said, feel like they're being listened to. Mm -hmm. And we lean in to listen. We listen in, in the way in terms of listening for what we hear and what we don't hear. Because what we don't hear gives us the opportunity to ask them to tell us more, mm -hmm. to tell us more about them so that we can uh, open up their story just a little bit more. Now, was this was this done exclusively as a result of COVID, as a result of people not being able to visit, or has this always been the culture? No, this is part of the culture at, at Parkland okay. and at the HCA hospitals to make this personal connection. Um, people at all levels of the organization actually make their own personal connection with the patient mm -hmm. so that the patients often do write back and tell us that they did feel like they belonged and were part of their plans of care. Okay. What, um, Linda, after several weeks at Parkland Medical Center, I know the decision was then made to move your parents to High Point House in Haverhill, which is the hospital, excuse me, the hospice residence operated by Merrimack Valley Hospice. Um, and in the past, I've heard you talk about how this felt very scary. 
Um, I'm hoping you'll please kind of discuss this a little bit further because you're definitely not alone in that fear. Um, it's a tremendous transition from a hospital center, a medical center that's pursuing care and treatments to a hospice center. Um, and I'd love for you to maybe go into that a little bit more. Sure. Um, I had no experience with hospice prior to both my parents being admitted and always thought a, a hospice is a place that some would go because they were dying and just envisioned that my mom and dad would be on morphine and unconscious the whole time. So once mm. again, you know, my parents went from Parkland that weren't familiar with and now they're going into hospice with new nursing staff. And I just had so much, again, emotions of not knowing my parents. They can't advocate for themselves. I, you know, what's going to happen with my mom and dad? So um, as the ambulance came and picked up my mom and dad simultaneously at Parkland, which um, was an amazing thing, they took my parents to the High Point Hospice House. And uh, my sister and I got there prior to, I sat in my car and I grabbed some pieces of paper and just scribbled down everything I could about who my mom and dad were. I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to see my mom and dad, and at that point, they had deteriorated. As my mom and dad exited the ambulance and it was being rolled into high horse hospice, my dad was still vocal. He had the oxygen mask on, and he just told us how much he loved us and that he was so happy he was finally going to be with my mom side by side. Hospice allowed me to go in, fill out paperwork and registration, and I was able to give them some scrap pieces of paper who my mom and dad were. After a few days, I was able to visit my mom and dad only an hour a day. And when I went into their room, those pieces of paper were on their bulletin board. So every day when I could not be there, the staff knew things about my mom and dad. And um, they had cards of endearment um, and, you know, personal belongings and my mom and dad were ballroom dancers, and they loved the 50s music. My mom loved Elvis. And every time I would talk to my mom or dad via the camera, the music was playing. So the High Point hospice staff actually took the time to read those notes. And when I could not be there, they would talk to my mom and dad and say, oh, you have daughters, you have granddaughters. Oh, Leo, you are a veteran. You know, Anna, I hear you love Elvis. We're playing it. So even though my mom and dad weren't able to respond, they made personal connections that comforted my mom and dad when they couldn't have their loved ones by their side. That sounds incredibly meaningful, maybe not only to them, but was maybe hopefully you were able to take some comfort in that as well? I took a lot of comfort because I tried so hard being my mom and dad's advocate, letting everyone know who they are. You know, my mom and dad had very distinct personalities, and my dad did still have a lot of his personality, even though he had Alzheimer's, but my mom could not articulate. She was not able to speak anymore, so she couldn't express her pain, her love, her sorrow. She couldn't express herself. I could tell via my mom's eyes, but for staff who did not know my mom and dad, they could not read their eyes, they may not know their behavior, I was my parents' voice, and I made it my job. Mm -hmm. as the advocate to make sure that everyone knew who they were. Yeah. And I also wanted to make it easier on staff, right? So if staff were treating someone who they didn't know who they were treating, they're treating more than a patient. They're treating, you know, a person who has a name, who has a family, who has a history. And I wanted to also make it easier on staff for them to relate to the patients and not just treat them as two people who had COVID. 
Marley, I'd love for you to get a chance to speak to this, please. Um, maybe in this case, why was High Point House the best place to care for the Barons at the time? And, and maybe if you have any thoughts about some of those things that Linda's talking about, um, the different things that she had made clear about her parents and, and if that was helpful and if that's something that you encourage other patients, families to do, and if that is helpful for the staff. Sure, I mean, Lin Linda was amazing. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> that's evidence. <laughs> it's evidence yeah, of all of us. Yeah, and, and it was so great that um, both her parents were, it's sad, but it was wonderful that we were able to put them in a room together. Their beds were right beside each other. They held hands. Um, and like Linda said, her mom wasn't able to communicate, but she felt the comfort of Leo's hand and that warmth and that familiar touch. Mm. Um, and all, you know, the notes that Linda, Linda left and the conversations that we had over the phone, that we could then take that knowledge and go in and really be, I, I, sometimes I felt at, like after talking with Linda, like I was her sister, so I could go in there and <laughs> envision that those were my parents and maybe even crack a joke or, you know, read the, um, the newspaper or the reader's digest, something act. I, I would try to make, uh, um, Leo and Anna feel as though we're all family. And that even though, you know, their own daughters weren't there, um, maybe <laughs> like a little surrogate family is, is there. And I think them coming to, or any patient coming to the High Point House, our goal is to make them feel at home. No more bells and whistles. Right. It's, you know, with the music on the background, it's nice and quiet. The sun's coming in, shining in on mm -hmm. them. Um, and I hope that that made them feel very relaxed and just having, and being in each other's company. Now, and I hope I helped Linda as well, knowing mm -hmm. that they had such a nice, calming and um, soothing environment. I'll let Linda speak to that actually, because I, I do believe that this was, and Marley, please correct me if I'm wrong, I believe it's the first time in memory or perhaps ever that patients were allowed to be together in the first room. And please maybe talk about how that was possible. Yeah, it was the first time that we've been able to do that. Um, we Our rooms are very spacious, so we could accommodate two beds. Um, unfortunately, well, fortunately we don't, you know, it's not a common thing to happen. So mm -hmm. um, we haven't had to do that, but we would we would do it again. And it was, I, again, I feel like um, end of life care and any type of medical care revolves so much about not only the medications, but everything else around the, the person's environment and, and who they're with. And in, during this pandemic and all this uncertainty, we weren't able to give as much of that as we wanted to. So relying on Linda and her communication with us was imperative to make sure that we could provide the best uh, comfort for her parents. And it does sound like obviously it was, Linda, extremely important for them to be together in the same room and not just down the hall. Yeah, so for me, my my dad, still felt as though he was the caretaker and still was responsible taking care of my mom. He loved my mom very much and it was his wife, but he still felt his role of caretaker for her because mm -hmm. again, she was in a walker, she was not able to speak. Mm -hmm. So he felt a responsibility for her. And I will let Rosemary sort of talk about that a little bit more yes. at Parkland, but I do know that my dad had a lot of peace and I don't think mm -hmm. he really 
realized or thought about where he was, except the fact that he knew that my mom was beside him. And at right. the end of the day, all that mattered to my dad in his worst day, not being able to breathe, just being able to open his <clears> eyes <throat> and knowing that my mom was lying beside him was the only thing that got my dad through the day and gave him peace. But I would love for Rosemary to really emphasize their experience with my dad when he was at Parker alone for 19 days before my mom arrived. Yeah. So we had a very unusual opportunity, which we felt like really was best able to serve their needs, something that we didn't even plan for ourselves. Um, while we were caring for Leo, he had what is typical for patients with COVID pneumonia. He had some ups and downs in terms of how his care went. He was doing pretty well for a couple of days, and then he would become tired, and his respiratory status would become tired as well. Mm. And we could observe the changes in him in terms of even if he was having an anxious day, missing his wife on a particular day more than others, uh, that definitely contributed to the severity of his symptoms. So we did a lot with our staff to try to go in and reduce those stresses for him as best we could. Sometimes someone went in Frank was uh, one of the nurses who cared for him frequently, who went in and played cards with him and did whatever he could do to relax him and to help put his fears at ease. And we would connect him with Linda, uh, you know, even if he was anxious so that he could talk to her and he could see her with our WebEx. We would pull up the WebEx so that he could not only talk to her, but see her as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then on what we would call uh, Leo's worst day in terms of his symptoms one morning, we were all quite distressed in terms of how he was doing and knew we needed to calm him down in order to prevent further deterioration. And by this time, we'd had a lot of conversations with Linda and began to know what they wanted. Their main promise to each other was that they would stay together until the moment of their death if they could. Mm. And that was the promise that we took on in terms of what could we do for that. So we actually called Merrimack Valley Hospice House and asked them if they could do what we had started and if they could continue that by keeping them in the same room. And they were generous in terms of offering that opportunity to us too. But uh, there was a lot of mechanics that came up to that. So on Leo's worst day of his symptoms, uh, Frank went in to spend some time to try to relax him and we talked to him and while I was in there talking with them and talking with Linda with him to try to calm him down, a phone call came to us and it was um, actually the ER telling us that, or the Linda was calling us I think to tell us that her mother was on her way over there also with COVID pneumonia. Mm -hmm. So here's this spouse feeling his greatest degree of separation which is contributing to his conditions decline and his wife is en route to our hospital. This was an opportunity we did not plan, but we knew that it was in front of us and we wanted to make the best of it. So we worked with our supervisors and our leadership staff to find out, is there an opportunity for us to put them together in one room, which had not been done at the hospital either. <clears throat> for these patients and we were able to do that. So we put them first in the room together and as soon as we did the staff could pick up on the fact that they knew they were back together. You could tell by their glance and by his, well he obviously was able to vocalize she wasn't, but you could see it in her face. You could Aww. see that they knew they were together. And so that worked for us for a couple of days and so many staff connected to their story as, as Leo moved from um, room to room and unit to unit. He was actually in three different units while he was in our hospital. But we could see, once again, that Leo's condition was changing. Mm -hmm. He wasn't able to hold his respiratory status stable, and we feared another separation. So that at that time, that's when I reached out to Merrimack Valley Hospice, having been a former hospice nurse and yes. knowing what the hospice house can do for patients in this kind of situation. And um, 
I asked the hospice house if they could continue and keep this couple together, of which they were gracious to do so. We also made some connections with our community that worked well to suit their needs. We asked the ambulance drivers, was there any way that they could possibly send two ambulances that could travel side by side to Haverhill? Because sometimes we know that in that short ride from one facility to another, something happens. And we didn't want them not to have had the sense that they traveled together. We also arranged with Linda and her sister to get them properly garbed and the same equipment that we had on so that they could have a visit with their parents before they left our hospital to go to the house. And then I think you had another opportunity like that at the house, right? Linda, I think they did. So um, so those things made a difference in terms of giving them the sense of traveling together. And as Linda expressed when her dad came out of the hospital, he said, I'm so glad that we're leaving the hospital together. So he knew that. Mm -hmm. And the ambulance drivers fit right into the story and traveled together side by side, which they said is something they'd never done before either. So it oh. all kind of came together. That's touching. Yeah. So Rosemary and Marley, actually, why are collaborations like the one between Parkland Medical Center and Merrimack Valley Hospice so important? Like, are they as rare as they seem to me? Or as, because this is such a special outcome for this family. Yeah, I think it takes diligence and I think that it takes um, really listening like um, Merrimack Valley did to mm -hmm. our request and us listening to Linda's request and I think it's um, actually trying to figure out how can I best align what we have available for them with this patient's request and then I think it's a matter of what finding out what what does Merrimack Valley need from me and what do I need to give Merrimack Valley in order mm -hmm. to make this transition smooth for them and I think it takes diligence and, and a connection and, and trust I guess between organizations as well that that we're working together to provide for this patient's care in an acute care institution eventually we reach a limitation in terms yeah. of what we can do for compassionate end-of-life care and there's a better place where they could be and we have to help our patients and families understand that because it's not what they initially think of hospice when they hear about it but when mm -hmm. we can describe it's almost like home and that they can focus in on the things that Marley talked about and Linda talked about in terms of what were their personal personal preferences in terms of music and you know their memories and uh, those things they can draw on those even further to make the remaining time they have together as meaningful as it can be mm -hmm. and that, that gives Linda some peace as well to know that yeah. Marley oh, I'd love to get your thoughts as well on the um, on the collaboration and and if that's something that Merrimack Valley Hospice, you know, if it's as, again, as rare as I, and special as I, as I think it is, or if that's just common practice and something that you just have to, again, like what Rosemary said, just work really hard at. We do try to collaborate yeah. as much as we can and with, with all of the facilities. Yeah. Um, this was a very unique situation, again, being in pandemic and us being the only facility that had a unit that could care for um, people that were positive with COVID. So mm -hmm. um, there weren't, there were no other options yeah. for, for uh, Leo and Anna to be together. So the time was right. And it was really great that um, the hospice house was able to, to provide right. that for them. But yeah, we do the, as an organization, we, we try to collaborate. We have um, nurses who are liaisons that are out in the, in the field and the hospitals and other facilities that do work with a management or in with families to hopefully transition um, the patients to the hospice house and have it be an easy transition in making it a unique experience mm -hmm. for, for the families and the patients. 
Linda, I'd love to know any advice you might have based on your experience um, for other family members who find themselves in this position as having to advocate for a loved one at a medical facility um, or even for healthcare facilities now that you've you know, gone through this and, and maybe see some lessons to be learned on either side? Sure, that's a great question. Uh, my advice is that I just knew what was best for my mom and dad. I listened and learned to what my parents' wishes were, and it wasn't about what I wanted or what I thought was best. So when I first became my parents' advocate um, over eight years ago, I was doing things that I thought was best, but I learned I had to make sure that I respected what my parents wanted, and more importantly, I had to make sure that others treated my parents with respect and dignity. So being an advocate is really not always about being the loudest. It's really about being proactive and informative and taking care of someone you love, um, you know, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, and ensuring that other people are able to do the same when you're not around. Um, as I mentioned before, I, I really tried really hard, no matter where my parents were, to always make sure that they were home, whether it be in the hospital or hospice, mm -hmm. by bringing them their favorite fruit, their t-shirts, whatever I thought would give them comfort. And during this process, both Parkland and High Point, um, and I just I didn't really need to make this because being a caretaker is a lot of work and I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it up for anything. I was very proud that my mom and dad allowed me to be their advocate. But upon their death, yeah. I needed to be more than an advocate. Mm -hmm. I needed to be their daughter. Yes. And for the first time in many, many years, I was able to be their daughter and hold their hand as their daughter and not just as their advocate. And that is a gift mm -hmm. that Parkland and the High Point was able to give me by comforting my parents and comforting me at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as, 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 as something that I would like to give advice is just listen to your loved ones, listen to what they want and voice their needs and make sure it happens. Mm. Linda, my heart just goes out to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Rosemary, are there lessons to be learned or just reinforcement of a great, of a success story? I think that every patient um, teaches us something, you know, different about how best to care for people. And I think in this case, the promise that they made together was so strong and so visible, became even more visible to us through Linda's advocacy and through our ability to keep them together and to, to honor the things that Linda shared with us about them and then to continue their promise and to see that happen for them, I think uh, really helped us to see how our own staff connected to that story. The more we learned about this patient's family and about Linda and all of their relationships, the stronger our staff was able to care for them mm -hmm. in terms of doing the right thing for them, being present with them when they needed it the most. And then I think from our community, we also had the opportunity to see how our community responded along with us to keep this promise together yeah. for this family, for two ambulances to do what they had never done before and to travel down 495 together side by side yeah. in case something happened. Yeah. 
to park together outside of our hospital mm -hmm. and allow for a family visit where both of uh, Linda and her sister were able to visit with them just in case something did happen en route to the hospital. Yeah. Did we do everything that we could possibly do for them? So I think uh, Leo's story is very much, Leo and Anna's story is still very much alive at our hospital and has mm -hmm. really fueled our ability to provide compassionate, connected care for our patients and something that we talk about often and we've um, had some um, new opportunities even to use this story to help others understand what, how powerful a connection can be the sooner that it's made. Oh. And Marley, are there lessons learned for High Point House? Because I know that a lot of patients and families come with a lot of added stress and a lot of fear maybe and mm. and just maybe not not knowing just a lot of uncertainty um so it just it seems like you're it seems like you deal with a lot there is a lot of uncertainty this is the first time that anybody yeah. is ever going to go through this yeah you only right. your mom once you only lose your dad once yeah. you don't know how you're going to feel you don't know how to act you don't know what's going to happen mm. i'm sure it's the scariest thing ever um, I really encourage creating all um, all nurses, doctors to create a relationship with the families because we'll be able to um, provide the, the best care, the most unique care for, the, for that family. And then also really being able to listen because unlike Linda, who has a very strong voice <laughs> and asked so many questions, which I thought was awesome, through those questions, we were able to really get a feel we got to, even without Linda realizing it, we got more information about what she wanted and, and what um, Leo and Anna wanted. But there are a lot of there are a lot of people who are advocates for their for their families, but they don't know how to go uh, forward. And they don't know what questions to ask, and that's okay. Right. Yeah. Um, right. But I I hope that people, well, lessons that we have learned is to really um, uh, help people to try to ask questions or get to know families um, in, a, in a deeper way so we can help comfort them when they don't really know what to ask. They don't know what to expect. So if we can develop a closer relationship with the families, it helps the whole big picture yeah. of going through this experience. I think too, we have an opportunity as as caregivers in our settings, Marley's and, and uh, the hospital and the hospice houses, to narrate the care that people don't see. So there's a lot of care that we see that's going on behind the scenes, but our patients and families don't have it in a normal day, never mind this era of great separation mm -hmm. when they can't even physically be mm -hmm. present. So it's important that we let them know who's talking with whom, which physicians are talking with whom and, and working on their care. Because otherwise, what happens, I'm sure Linda experiences sometimes, is you get several different perspectives but they're not necessarily connected. So it's helpful for Linda to know that the pulmonologist spoke with the cardiologist and the cardiologist spoke with the hospitalist and together they decided this was the best approach because otherwise she might be getting all of those messages individually, but they're not connected and that can cause great confusion. So I think as nurses, certainly Marley and I have an understanding that we have an opportunity to narrate the care that's being provided and that helps our families and our patients to better understand how their care comes together. Mm -hmm. relieves a lot of anxiety and um, uncertainty for them in an era when we can't control as much as we'd like to. That's very well said. Linda, looking back, could anything else have been done or is there anything that could still be done to make maybe the next family's heartbreak a little easier to bear? 
Um, for me, um, you know, I didn't really have control of the outcome of my parents. Um, and as I stated before, I mean, my parents were bigger than life. They had great personalities. They were very social. And it really was an honor taking care of them. I think for me, I don't think I was able to change anything that I did um, in terms of advocating. And uh, when you have parents or a loved one who can't speak for whatever reason, it could be um, an illness, it could be Alzheimer's, memory impairments like my parents. Um, I just want other people to know that through my parents' story um, and not being able to be by their bedside and all the fears that I had, even though I was an advocate, I want people to to I just want to be able to help others via my story. So I don't expect people to be exactly like me, but be well informed, advocate, you know, work with the clinical staff, you know, be open. It's really a cohesive triad. It's you, it's your loved ones, and it's the clinical staff. And just be part of the team. And I'm I'm just hoping that I can help one family either be better at advocating or be at peace to know that you can't be there for whatever reason, that there are clinical staff members um, that are acting like surrogate family and to give those people peace, I'm hoping. Mm. Right. Well, thank you very much. Thank you to all of you. I, I think that this was just a great example of of just the tiniest bit of good that can come from something so tragic. Um, Linda, my heart, I can't even tell you how much my heart goes out to you if you were here and if it wasn't COVID times, I would give you the biggest hug. <laughs> I truly, I think you're so brave to tell this story and I can hear the pain in your voice all these many, many months later and I'm sure it'll always be in your heart, but I, I really just wanna tell you how brave I think you are and, and I think that you, by sharing your story, all of you, by sharing your stories, um, I believe that you'll help people that you'll never even know. So thank you for doing it. And thank you all for your time. It, it means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you all. Thank you. Thanks, Linda.